A month ago, the United States withdrew most of its forces from Afghanistan, a country we have semi-occupied and supported for the last two decades in an effort to keep it from being a staging ground for another attack like that of 9-11-2001. As we began to pull out, the Taliban, which once ran the country already and has been fighting to come back for the past 20 years, quickly took over the reins of power. But now it faces international isolation and daunting economic prospects. Where does Afghanistan go from here? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss developments in Afghanistan since the American withdrawal with Sarah Shah, a PhD candidate in political science here at the CUNY Graduate Center. Her dissertation examines the politics of post-counterinsurgency state building in northwestern Pakistan. More broadly, her research focuses on post-conflict reconstruction and state building, the question of state sovereignty and international intervention in conflicts in South Asia and the Middle East. She has an MA in politics from New York University, and she comes to us today from Lahore, Pakistan, where she is trying to do the uh, research for her dissertation. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, Sarah Shah. Thank you, John, for inviting me. Glad to be here. Well, thanks. Great to have you. So let's launch right in. What What is the situation in Afghanistan now that the Taliban has been in control of the country for a month? I mean, obviously, the early reports of the uh, evacuation of American personnel and some of their Af- Afghan uh, fellow workers, colleagues, uh, was not particularly uh, a happy one. And, uh, you know, much blame has been cast on the on the Biden administration for its alleged lack of uh, preparedness for what was going to happen when the forces withdrew. What's been going on for the last month from your perspective? Right. So the first thing that was very notable about this one month period since uh, the U.S. withdrew and others were evacuated um, from Kabul is that there is a negative piece that is that seems to have sort of been put in place. Uh, minus Panjshir, but I'll get to Panjshir in one second. Um, so it seems like, you know, the guns have fallen silent for the most part. Uh, it's And so the absence of violence or conflict, in the sense that the conflict is over, is perhaps the silver lining uh, amidst all the chaos that we saw last month um, and the Taliban coming back to Kabul, um, you know, President Ghani leaving in, in the way that he did. So for the most part, uh, Afghans can at the moment enjoy a, an absence of war in the way that it had uh, existed in 20 years, in the last 20 years. The only exception is Panjshir, the province um, up in the north, um, where Taliban is fighting a bit of resistance coming in from people who had fled the rest of the country and had gone up to Panjshir, led by Amrullah Saleh, the, vice, the former vice president. But um, as things stand, although there are conflicting views about who's winning uh, Panjshir, is it the Taliban, is it the resistance, 
it seems um, that that you know conflict has been contained in that region, and my guess is in time that the resistance is going to sort of uh, end or will be defeated by the Taliban. So that's the first thing, the negative piece. The second thing is um, the new caretaker government that the Taliban have announced recently, right? And so the world was looking uh, to um, at that the Taliban particularly because of the agreement that Taliban had made with the U.S. in February 2020, that when they do come to power, uh, it's going to be through an intra-Afghan dialogue and it's going to be an inclusive government that will sort of uh, take place, take shape. But we have seen that that has not been the case. And so many people from the old guard of the Taliban have actually now become cabinet members, from the prime minister, um, Hassan Akhund, to the Deputy Prime Minister, um, Mullah Baradar, um, the most sort of uh, controversial figure here is the Interior Minister, uh, Sirajuddin Haqqani, who, you know, has a bounty placed on his head because of his specific uh, threat of terror towards the U.S. Um, and so you have so far um, a cabinet that the Taliban say it's temporary, we will sort of uh, be more all-inclusive as we go down the line. But so far, it seems like the Taliban are in power and they're not really open to sharing. I mean, it doesn't seem to be that they're open to sharing. Um, so those are the things on the political front. On the economic front, as we know, uh, you know, things, it, things are a mess. Um, every day that the Taliban have to, or the new government is dealing with food crisis, crisis of, uh, you know, paying salaries to its own people, to people who were in power uh, earlier, or who were sort of working for the government, to the, to the combatants that they had. Um, and finally, very briefly, we also see that when the Taliban came to power, they, their initial statements were about not taking back the rights women had and the freedoms women had enjoyed under, uh, under Karzai and Ghani's regime. And so initially it was like, we won't, we won't put, you know, we won't cage them the way we had in 1996 back in their residences and that they will be, women will be allowed to get an education and take jobs and be employed. But in the last couple of weeks, we've seen that the actual work on the ground has been different. Some women have been allowed to work. Others haven't been allowed to work. Um, and the same thing with the freedom of media. The Taliban had uh, said that the media would be free to report. And they can, you know, cover protests. They can cover whatever is happening at Kabul airport, etc. But in the last few days, uh, they have actually stopped uh, media from covering protests and have actually threatened some media personnel, some journalists. Um, I they even threatened them, sort of t- uh, taken them and given them, you know, sort of intimidated them into trying to stay silent. So it's a mixed bag at the moment. You know, great promises a month back, but now we're seeing a bit of the old complexion. Taliban coming back. Right. So, um, you know, to the untrained observers such as myself, um, you know, I have this image of Afghanistan as kind of divided between, you know, in some ways a highly modern, uh, Western oriented kind of elite, Western educated often, um, and a, um, you know, a large population that is not sort of privy, let's say, to the um, you know, advantages of modernity and modern life. 
Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about the society that uh, the Taliban is taking over. I mean, obviously there is this, I think, clash between, you know, the modern and the unmodern is one way to look at this. Um, and, you know, in the images or the, the reporting on the withdrawal, you know, you sort of have this image that it's the modern folks who feel very much threatened and like they just don't want to live in a society that's governed by the Taliban. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the nature of uh, of Afghan society. So so you're quite right that there is a over the last 20 years because of the, the, the US efforts to sort of nation build and, and rebuild and have the government of Karzai and Ghani deliver certain public goods and services. With it also came a fair bit of modern education, infrastructure, uh, the way the bureaucracy was working. Um, we've seen images of Taliban in offices with, you know, really, you know, wonderful computers and, you know, all decked out as if it's a modern office. And some of them seem a bit bemused, not to say that, that, that they've never been in an office, but the, the technology and sort of the wherewithal that the resources that are around them that have been that were in use um, before they took over Kabul and now have been abandoned in one sense or taken over. Um, so there's there's that. Um, socially as well, Afghanistan that of today that the Taliban have returned is very different from what Taliban saw in 1996 when they came, you know, when their first round of governance or government happened. Um, so there definitely is a, a, a brush of brush with modernity that many Afghans have faced. But I would argue that this is true for urban centers um, in Afghanistan. Much of the rural uh, areas and the countryside and the, the vast population that lived there um, was not as in touch. I wouldn't say as in touch with modernity. I would say did not uh, benefit from or take advantage or was able to take advantage of the modernity of, let's say, Kabul. Um, so there is the fear of Taliban turning black back the clock is real. Uh, we've already seen that there, there's sort of like a there's an impetus of the Taliban to say we will give media freedom, but then also take it back. So they're OK with cameras, but then they're not OK with cameras. Um, and so there's that bit of suspicion of modernity that the Taliban do have um, as well. But I think moving forward. And this is a dilemma as much for the Taliban, if we want to stay in government in, in Afghanistan and with the rest of the world, who has to decide how to engage with the Taliban, if at all to engage, is this question of modernity versus the, the deep conservatism that we see uh, of the Taliban. And uh, I think Taliban today also know and they kind of realize that they also probably have to give a little because they need to get a little. And so that could be a place where the fears of, you know, going completely back in 1996, where things were really dark, um, that might not happen. Um, at, at least that's my hope. So um, I wonder, you know, to what extent would you say the Taliban actually has kind of support or legitimacy among the Afghan population? Um, you know, I mean, one sort of view of what happened uh, just now, a month ago, is that 
you know, uh, an elite that was in many ways propped up by, as you say, by the United States and, and international aid, um, you know, was not really very much loved, maybe outside of Kabul. And that, you know, therefore it lost, you know, the government simply dissolved, it seemed, in the face of, you know, pressure from the Taliban, which, you know, had largely to do with the circumstances, of course. But, um, you know, that there's some real popular support for the Taliban. Uh, so I wonder if you could talk about, you know, the extent to which you think it's the case that the Taliban actually has, you know, support in in Afghan society and, you know, in which sectors and that sort of thing. Right. So I would sort of my I would, uh, you know, ask you to take my answer with a pinch of salt, because I feel looking at how Taliban seem to have survived in the last 20 years um, and the manner in which. Since Feb 2020, when the sort of agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban was brokered, um, you know, and the Taliban began to actually move from province to province, and they were able to uh, get people on their side or, or kind of push back against the Afghan National Army with all its resources that, and training and everything, um, which is why we're all, or many of us, are surprised at the speed at with which they reached Kabul, uh, took over provinces and, and reached Kabul. I would caution against saying that, or, or at least I feel that Taliban aren't popularly legitimate in the classical sense of the word, that if there was an election today, people would vote them in, perhaps. Um, I feel it is a case of um, people at the village and the tribal level deciding who is going to be able to give them security, peace, deliver certain basic needs that they need for, for survival and for living and perhaps prosperity. And so I think, um, and you know, so many people have written about in, in civil war literature, we have this sort of uh, cost benefit analysis that people do when they want to decide, do I join the Taliban? Do I join the Afghan National Army? Or do I try to remain nonpartisan and sort of just you know, uh, keep away from, from the conflict until push comes to shove. So I feel that it's not so much that Taliban is uh, supremely popular, but I think that the alternative to Taliban did not work. Um, beyond Kabul and beyond the urban centers where both Karzai's administration and Ghani were working, um, there did not seem to be uh, the deliverance of public goods of justice. And that is one of the strangely, you know, as brutal as they have been, somehow a lot of people um, in Afghanistan um, and in my own research in Pakistan also initially when the Pakistani Taliban were sort of doing, uh, were sort of taking over little towns and in, in villages in the Northwest, a lot of people ended up saying, well, the justice system administered by the central government hardly reaches us. We don't get justice, or, you know, criminals are going unpunished, and at least the Taliban are providing swift justice. And, you know, our, the crime in our area has gone down, you know, and so on and so forth. And so I feel that just sort of the, the, the ability of the Taliban to provide certain key things, um, such as security or, or such as, um, I mean, I wouldn't say that they were giving roads and railways. 
or jobs. But the alternative was very bleak. And that is part of why the Taliban were able to uh, sort of sweep across. The other, and this is a very minor point, I'm, I'm not going to, I mean, it's not a minor point, but I will not spend too much time, too much time on this, is that once the Taliban had garnered from the, from the U.S. this sort of promise of withdrawal, ultimately, um, and the deadline had been set, um, it changed the sort of the equations on the ground of people who were fighting with the Taliban. Because we do have reports um, uh, of people, of Taliban actually saying to the Afghan National Army, people who are fighting the army, you know, I mean, the U.S. is leaving, so, and you're not being paid. Uh, you had, and they weren't being paid, actually. The Afghanistan government was, you know, abysmally dealing with its its own army. So then what do you want to do, you know? Um, and so there is a bit of that. It's a bit of uh, the question of survival. And it seemed that Taliban seemed to have offered a bit more to a lot of more people, to a lot more people than the the alternative. So I'll stop there. Interesting. Well, thank you for that. Um, I mean, I wanted to, you, you know, you talked about 1996 and, uh, you know, when Afghanistan is discussed, there's always this uh, kind of discussion about the graveyard of empires and, you know, the long kind of efforts of various outside powers to intervene there and to, you know, bend it to their uh, desires. Um, you know, the Soviets obviously were one of those. Uh, and we, in those days, we supported the Mujahideen, you know, some of which ended up uh, on the other side of, you know, their their uh, posture towards the United States. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the, you know, the situation in Afghanistan from this more historical perspective. I mean, how does this history affect, influence what's going on now? So the graveyard of the empires is a, is a very sort of it's a temptingly delicious phrase, especially if someone wants to crow about it. <laughs> you know, if someone's uh, on the side of the Avant and say, well, you know, of course, no one's going to colonize them or invade them and win and you know, live to speak about it, etc. But I feel that it gives the impression that Afghanistan's history is one of a unified nation that has sort of propelled and repelled all these attacks coming in from all sides, whether it's the British, whether it's, you know, uh, in the 19th century, whether it's the Soviets, whether now the U.S. Um, so from, from Afghanistan's history is such that it has always been Apart from a short period under King Zahir Shah in the in the 19th century, it has always been sort of a disparate, like these provinces that largely were run by, you know, uh, what we call warlords now, you know, their, their own fiefdoms, etc. And there wasn't like this very strong central government that would send the army left, right and center, wherever uh, an external threat would emerge. So... Uh, I feel that the, the graveyard of empires phrase gives that, evokes that impression that there's this sort of very solid, unified nation. But I, the, in reading history of Afghanistan, you find that there has always been a lot of infighting amongst the Uzbeks and the Tajiks with, with each other. Sorry, not infighting, but like there has always been this power struggle and this sense of, you know, this is my territory and so I have this control and I will not breach or I will not sort of, uh, 
maybe go over into your territory. So the Pashtuns, the Uzbeks, the Tajiks, Hazaras, they have their own territories. And as long as they can live in peace with each other, it's, you know, so there's that. There's a lot of infighting between them, a lot of fighting between them, sorry. Um, it's only when the external force seems to get closer to, to Afghanistan that somehow they coalesce. And then they're like, okay, you know, the external enemy um, has to be taken out first. So, yeah, I wonder if that answers your question. Or should I sort of go a little more in detail? Yeah, I mean, it certainly helps. I mean, um, you know, the question is really, uh, is this the sort of thing, you know, that one sees over and over again? And I think to some extent that is the case. Um, but... You know, I think it's important, as you note, uh, to say that, you know, Afghanistan is perhaps not the most coherent place uh, when it comes to sort of territorial integrity and territorial sovereignty and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, for people to understand that this is a pretty, how should we say, squishy kind of uh, place in a way that, you know, it's hard to nail down who's in control of what and, you know, I mean, part of the graveyard of empire's notion has to do with the, you know, remoteness of some of the areas of the country and how difficult it is to, you know, intervene in these mountainous regions that are, you know, very hard to get at. So, uh, you know, one wonders sometimes, you know, what's exactly the appeal of all this? Uh, and this raises another question that I wanted to ask you, which is, of course, you know, who, who do you think exactly, you know, benefits the most from the American withdrawal and the, uh, the Taliban takeover? Um, you know, there's some who say China benefits from this because it gives them more influence in the region. Others say the Chinese have no desire to get, you know, involved in this kind of messy situation. Uh, and we're perfectly happy for the United States to be kind of pinned down in this, you know, morass uh, and providing security for Chinese investment opportunities that were going on in the country. So, uh, I mean, how do you see that? question who benefits from this uh, changing of the guard so to speak so my so my answer to that would be that it depends on how, what the u.s withdrawal brings to afghanistan so if the american withdrawal means that afghanistan can see a period of peace and if stability and you know uh, i mean at the moment there's this fragile sort of negative peace but um if, if Afghanistan is able to sort of retain that sense of, I wouldn't say retain, I mean improve on that sense of st- stability and security and peace reigns, then I would answer, I would say that there, there can be multiple winners. It could be China. It could be also, you know, the regional, uh, the, the, the neighborhood, Pakistan, Iran, Russia, who seems to have um, initially at least made overtures to the Taliban, um, you know, as well. And, I would argue even the U.S. could benefit from a different kind of engagement, a non-military kind of engagement with Afghanistan. Uh, so who do I think benefits from American withdrawal? It really depends on if the, if the American withdrawal means that there will be peace. Now, if it means that Afghanistan falls into another civil war, then I would say no one really benefits uh, with, you know, 
with another round of civil war and conflict in Afghanistan, with more disarray in, in Afghanistan. So that would be my impression. That would be my... Right, right. Well, I mean, one thing that we really need to talk about I think a little bit more, if we can, is, um, you know, the point that you made at the beginning about the economic difficulties that the Taliban now faces and that the country as a whole faces. Uh, I believe I've seen, you know, uh, sort of uh, reporting to the effect that something like a million people are facing more or less immediate uh, starvation and famine. Uh, and there's, of course, this whole larger problem of international, the international isolation of the Taliban regime. Uh, and so the, the, the question then arises of, you know, what's going to replace what, you know, has been propping things up for many years now, really, which is, as I said earlier, U.S. and international aid. I think I saw something the other day to the effect that a billion dollars has now been promised by international donors. But, um, you know, talk, if you would, about the economic situation and more particularly the, the concerns about hunger and famine. Right. So I'm going to deal with the economic question first and then the humanitarian question about hunger. I'll do it that way. Um, so economically, we know that a lot of, um, in, in fact, pretty much all the funds that the Vaughan government had, the foreign exchange reserves that were with the U.S., I think around, uh, I, I read a figure, $7 billion um, are, remain frozen with the U.S. The U.S. is not sort of, uh, you know, giving that to the new government, uh, the Taliban government, uh, the, uh, that money. Um, and another billion or so is with the IMF. Uh, Afghanistan had uh, gotten some special drawing rights from the IMF, and that came around um, to, you know, I think it was $450 million, um, and that too has been blocked by the IMF, so it's not being released to the Taliban government. So there is that money that was earmarked for whatever transitional intra-Afghan dialogue government would come, but it hasn't, uh, because it's just the Taliban at this point, uh, so there are freezes there, which means that um, with each passing day, there are there's you know there's fewer dollars in the bank for the Afghanistan, sorry for for the Taliban to make use of to buy food, to buy supplies, to pay you know bills um, for for energy companies that were working there and and providing energy. Um, so although there are some trade routes that are open through uh, Pakistan, I know there the trade and aid is flowing through Pakistan, possibly Iran as well. But by and large, the Taliban regime, you know, is like you said, um, at you know, had been kept as an, at an arm's distance. So economically, if things don't change, if money doesn't flow into uh, the economy soon, then uh, the Afghan that is already, the, the currency that is already going down, it's going to spiral further, which means whatever money they do have, whatever money people have in the country is going to buy them less and less. Inflation is going to go up. We already um, know that, uh, you know, World Food Program says that imminent, there's imminent, um, sort of the disaster is imminent at this point. At the end of the month, they estimate uh, that a lot of Afghans would be near starvation uh, because they're already food insecure. And I was seeing footage um, on some of uh, the TV uh, news channels about Afghans setting up sort of these garage sales outside their house, trying to sell their household items in order to 
sort of raise money to be able to buy food, to be able to pay bills, essentially. And so at this point, you know, things are getting desperate if uh, if the money isn't released or if international aid agencies uh, and governments sort of don't step in. There's also um, a lot of internal displacement. There are around 3.5 million Afghans internally displaced. And a lot of them, uh, apart from this number, are flowing outside of Afghanistan, trying to leave. Uh, Pakistan has a million and a half uh, Afghan refugees. Um, I think Iran took, uh, you know, has around 800,000 refugees. So people Con- are, are is, being is that, Excuse me. Is that connected to the American withdrawal or those populations were already in Pakistan and Iran before this happened? So these, so these are the total numbers at this point. I think after the... After the withdrawal, particularly, Iran saw an influx of, I think, uh, around two or three hundred thousand refugees, and Pakistan around seven hundred thousand refugees. If my numbers are correct, this is UNHCR uh, that I'm looking at. So, so a lot of them are from before, but now those numbers have swelled even more. But yes, you're right. There needs to be distinction between who were there before and what's the additional number. So, yeah, so I think the humanitarian crisis that is imminent and is unfolding, I think, should be addressed sooner rather than later. Now, I know that a lot of uh, countries, Germany, France and and the U.S. are also thinking, uh, you know, do we really want to release the money? Do we want to really offer this kind of support to the Taliban government? But I wonder if uh, there's a way in which you know, humanitarian aid or food aid can flow into Afghanistan via agencies without there being too many conditions on let's have an inclusive government first, then we'll give you aid, etc. I think there needs to be a weighing of what does it mean to uh, provide this humanitarian aid, whether or not certain political outcomes are being um, met in, in Kabul with the Taliban. Thank you. So, you know, maybe one final question, and that is really that, um, you know, the agreement that was made really by the Trump administration was that the United States would depart in exchange for an agreement from the Taliban that they would not support or allow the, you know, uh, use of their ter- the territory of Afghanistan to be uh, you know, a staging area for terrorist groups. I mean, this is obviously where this all started 20 years ago. Uh, what do you think are the prospects of that? And what about, you know, the Taliban's relations with various Islamist forces in the region and elsewhere? So I feel that uh, the Taliban have actually, so they signed the agreement. They said, yes, we are not going to allow our land to be used by any terror groups, foreign or local. And we will, you know, not be a part of any security threat to the U.S. Before reaching Kabul, and this is in July 2021, um, when the U.S. withdrawal was happening and the Taliban were gaining momentum and speed, um, they were also sending delegations to Russia and China, um, giving reassurances to these countries who also worry about, uh, you know, Islamist uh, terrorism coming from or you know, being housed in Afghanistan, spilling into Central Asia, spilling into China. And so those reassurances were being given by the Taliban to not just the U.S., but also the Russia and China, the other big players. Also, well, to Pakistan to some degree that, you know, they'll take care of TDP. 
um, because they essentially want to be recognized as 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 the government and uh they feel at this point that seeing it or giving these reassurances at least would be a step in the right direction now there's always been a question of how sincere the taliban have been they you know they al qaeda was there in the 90s they didn't give up osama bin laden as we know which is why the whole war began um what will they do going forward and that's that's a difficult question for me to answer because for, one cannot really say definitively that every single taliban who has power of the various factions within taliban uh would always sort of stay away from uh encouraging or housing or giving sanctuary to foreign terrorists but i feel that coming to power now the taliban realize that to be a part of the committee of nations and to be internationally recognized they have to be seen to do what they have reassured uh, all these big players that they will do um they've also seen 20 years of war and they know that uh you know who's to say that another country is not going to make war on them if they uh, go back on their word so i feel that there would be there is enough pressure and there is a sense of yes we won't allow our land to be used uh, against these other countries uh, but a lot of people are saying at this point since they're they're new to power there's so many challenges that the taliban are facing that outfits like the ice like isis for example that already have has carried out a couple of uh, bomb attacks in in and around kabul airport um if the taliban regime falters or is too weak then all these outfits that are there will again see afghanistan as this sort of ungoverned or weakly governed territory um and be able to sort of house itself and take uh, you know find the opportunity to, to regroup and use the afghanistan as a base for again so it is a bit of even if the taliban want to you know come up to scratch um in practical terms do they have the the, the ability to oversee this at every point in time from here on if their own government is faltering if there are challenges like economic and humanitarian ones and we've seen for example um john that as i discussed earlier at the local level at the subnational level the villages tribes etc um people want these base you know bond basic uh, public service provision uh, security um, the economy needs to improve for them to feel that the taliban are delivering right so if they could switch away from ghani and say okay you know we'd rather although we've seen the horrors that the taliban administrative regime brought in the in the 90s but we're willing to give them another chance because the alternative hasn't worked who's to say that moving forward if the taliban again are facing this massive you know this humanitarian and economic crisis that we're talking about uh they might lose that the kind of su- support that they do have right now this cautious support that they do have in the in the hinterlands two other groups uh like the ttp like the isis um isis khorasan seems to be rearing its head now um so so there's that fear in my opinion no that sounds right to me um and maybe just one final word i guess on you know what you think are their prospects i mean are they in a position to meet these challenges i mean it's hard to know i, I don't know who the personnel are you know how much experience they have with running a 
a country in the world today. It's not an easy thing to do. No, a massive challenge. Like I, uh, and in fact, that is why the Taliban are, you know, saying that they don't want a lot of these trained officials, bureaucrats, economists who are leaving the country and evacuating. They, they're, they're trying to encourage people to stay. Uh, they don't want the brain drain to happen as it were. Um, because they are, uh, you know, they're, they're, they acknowledge that they don't have the, the ability to do statecraft and run the show, run the bureaucracy. Um, they can fight a war and they've done it for a very long time, but running a government is an entirely different kettle of fish. So the challenges are great. I see, but, but I feel, um, so here's where one can't say because I think without engagement with the Taliban, if, in, if the Afghanistan is completely isolated, then the Taliban will find it very difficult to govern. Uh, and you see, uh, you know, you, you see possibly, like, like, I guess, like I said before, terrorist groups or other kinds of groups filling in the space and taking up people's loyalties simply because the Taliban are not delivering. Um, so at one point, we do want to push the Taliban to show that they mean what they say, not be brutal and oppressive the way they were before. Um, but on the other hand, how long can the international community really wait, um, you know, until it sort of steps in and, and, and says, all right, we are here to engage with you and help you run the show. And so I feel very, I feel very strongly that Taliban would need help internationally, uh, and to, to, you know, diplomatically to build ties, to have, uh, to, to, to bring enough stability back in the country so that perhaps Afghans who have left who know how to do this, economists and doctors and educators and, you know, trade analysts, et cetera, that they would be able to come back and join the government, um, such as it is. Got it. Well, as you say, I think it's a massive challenge, uh, and we'll just have to see how things work out. There are many worrisome signs so far, uh, both on the kind of gender equality front and on the economic front, but uh, we're just going to have to see what happens and hope for the best, I guess. So that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Sarah Shah for sharing her insights about the unfolding situation in Afghanistan under the Taliban. Please remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Risto Weinoff for his technical assistance, Meryl Sovner for helping put this together, and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Thanks very much. Thank you.